Welcome back to Musician's Tea Time. I'm your host, Gabby Schinner. And I'm your co-host, Sid Levine. We've got another fascinating guest from Gabby's little LA residency today, and another intrepid co-host. Our good friend Tia went out into the field with you to have tea with today's subject, who is... John Avila. He started in music very young and has had a range of collaborators that will definitely surprise you. We visited with him at his very own studio, Brando's Paradise, and we're just so grateful to have had this insightful conversation with that now ever so active musician, producer, teacher, who first gained acclaim as a bass player and has now branched off into so much more. Between performing, touring, recording, teaching, he's really done it all, and all with such high-octane energy. So, let's hear what you guys had to say. It is tea time right here at Brando's <laughs> Paradise, and welcome to Brando's Paradise. Great to have you here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks to you, John. Well, first of all, the question that we ask everybody, and which is not always easy to answer, how would you define yourself? What are you, a musician, a producer? It depends on what decade you might have uh, <laughs> asked me that question. Uh, right now, first of all, I am a musician because if it wasn't for music, it wouldn't. It, it, I wouldn't be doing what I do and all these other things that I do. But I love performing still, and that's originally that's what I did for the first twenty years of of my career was just performing and touring. It was after that that I got into production and owning a studio, owning this place, uh, Brando's Paradise. And I got into producing bands and a lot of different bands, all kinds of different things. So after that, I kind of, it was a combination of touring and production and, and doing sessions. But in the last, say, 15 years or so, uh, I've also included uh, teaching and uh, I started teaching, and the whole teaching thing started by accident. I was going to Starbucks to have a cup of coffee with my wife and my daughter. My daughter was 16 years old at the time, and she's a gifted uh, vocalist. She tends to sing more jazz, but she could cover any style, but she's an amazing jazz singer. So we walk into Starbucks, and there was a band playing, and, and they were really good I, I and first of all bands don't play at Starbucks <laughs> to this day I've never seen a band play at Starbucks and I never seen one before that but that day we walk in randomly to get a cup of coffee and there's a band playing and so uh, we, we sat and listened to them and they were amazing they did like these incredible arrangements of jazz songs and instead of using your typical sax or trumpet they were using like oboes and and bass clarinet, and you know what I mean. It was like wow, that's it was so different, and and their arrangements were exquisite, and my and they uh, one of the songs they did was Pure Imagination, the oh, Willy Wonka yeah. song, da 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 da, and so my daughter says, Dad, she goes, I do that song. She goes, and they do an incredible version of it. She goes, I would love to try it. Maybe we could talk to them about coming to this, to Brando's Paradise and, and recording. And, and so I go, you're right. That would be great. Let me hit them up. So when they took a break, I approached them and I said, hey, I, and this was a block away from here. And I said, I have a, a studio and I'll record you guys for free 
if you just record this one song, uh, uh, Pure Imagination, with my daughter. And so they agreed. It was like the next day or the day after this band came. And there was probably eight musicians. Upright bass, you know, all these different horn players. They had a piano player and a guitar player. And uh, they came over. I recorded them. It was like a four-hour session. When it ended, I they ended with they ended up with a like a three-song little recording, and I recorded it, mixed it, and one of the songs was "Pure Imagination." So I left them. They said goodbye, and that was I. Oh, that's the last I'll ever see them. But I got this awesome recording with my daughter. About a week later, I get a call from this gentleman named Bob Slack, and he's the dean of music at Citrus College here in Glendora. Uh, and they have an incredible music program there and also a million dollar studio. And they have a, a recording part of their, of their teaching. They teach you know, music theory, but they also have this incredible recording program. So he asked me if I would come have a meeting with them. They, they were just blown away by the recording and they were blown away by my daughter's voice. I ended up going and having a meeting with them and they eventually made me the artist in residence of Citrus College and uh, and they gave me a teaching, they gave me a, a, a an honorary degree to be able to do that because it was a, like a legit thing and then they offered me uh, to produce a big band album with a 30-piece orchestra. And I agreed to produce it and do it, but the only under the condition that I get to write half the songs that end <laughs> up on the recording. And they agreed to that. And they had my daughter singing all the songs. And so from that, this would have been around 2006. So this is around 15 years ago. And so I ended up going there and started teaching. I, and it wasn't much, it was like one, two days a week, but I enjoyed it so much. And I met some incredible young gifted musicians, some of whom I still work with to this day. From there, I started working with the Grammy Camp and I, was how I helped develop the Grammy Camp curriculum that is still happening today. And then I was invited to go teach at this school, Los Angeles College of Music. It was called LACM uh, Los Angeles uh, music academy back then and to this day I still teach there so that's something I, I started doing and it all started with a trip to Starbucks a crazy trip to Starbucks and it changed my life and I taught today and I meet these incredible musicians some of whom I still uh, that like I said I work with uh, I produce some of them after they graduate I, the first vocalist that I produced after she graduated uh, Mayu, uh, uh, this the singer from Tokyo, she got a record deal. She got signed to Sony and she's still signed to Sony and we're still doing some recording together. So I've developed some really wonderful musical relationships with uh, some of my former students that are still going to this day. Right, so you're actually all these things, musician, producer, and teacher. Yeah, educator. I call it educator. educator. But it's it's a little bit of giving back what I've learned over all these years of doing all this. And it's not just teaching bass. I teach production, songwriting, arranging, uh, sitting in a room with students, which I did today, and write songs together. I mean, how cool is that? And developing songs and learning the process of uh, working with other people and just creating together. That's something I love to do and I love to share how I do it. And then the students who some of them are just absolutely incredibly talented. 
I'm in awe of some of them. And so it's exciting for me to, to work with them. You feel like that that's been giving you some creative freedom? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I And I try to let them do it. But at the same time, we're doing it together, you know, and and so uh, the collaboration is is it's special doing this with younger people and they're open and I'm open and we we try to collaborate and make make music together. So that's one part of the teaching that I do. Some of it is I is um, performance, how to rock out and how to <laughs> how to put on a show and yeah, things like that. You're definitely the kind of person that a student should go to. I mean, after what we've seen live. Oh, thank uh, you. Well, only twice now, but there's definitely this element of motion. You have a very contagious energy on stage. It's fun to watch you perform. Thank you. Yeah. I enjoy doing it. It's still the, my favorite thing to do is to perform, and especially with fellow amazing you know, musicians. When the setting is right and the tone is right and everything is cool, I mean, I wish everybody can feel that feeling or what it feels like. There's something very unique and intense about it because it's not just recent. We can see on videos of you playing from like the 80s even that you always have that infectious energy. Thank you. I, I come from? What's the, what's the thing? <laughs> there's a lot... I still feel like a kid when I play. I don't feel any different from I did when I was 19 years old. I really don't. It feels the same. I, I still have this enthusiasm for trying to make a song as good as it can be and, and trying to, to have the best tone on my instrument that I can, you know, and playing with a great drummer. There's also elements of it, like doing an Oingo Boingo show. We still do, you know, two hour shows, 70, you know, close to two hour shows at some of our shows back in the oingo boingo days with danny elfman when we were touring our shows were often three and a half four hours long and i'm talking intense high energy punk rock uh, uh amongst other styles but it was always incredibly intense and to be able to pull off a show with that amount of energy for that amount of time it's like running a marathon <laughs> And so uh, I used to like run marathons or, or I used to run 40 miles a week. So that's the key. <laughs> to get in shape. And that includes cycling, you know, doing those kind of things to physically be able to not die on stage. <laughs> I mean, Danny has energy as well. He definitely had energy, but it's like you had overcharged batteries. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but I work at it. You know, I, I, I really do. I treat it like an athletic thing. At my age, uh, I, uh, you know, but I know guys older than me that can just do crazier things than I do. But for me, being able to just get on a bike and ride 50 miles uh, or climb a 5,000 foot mountain, to me at this age is really cool <laughs> and exciting. And going downhill uh, from a 5,000 mile hill, a 5,000 yeah. foot hill is super exciting. And those kind of things are just amazing. But uh I still feel that if my body still allows me to do it, uh, then I'm going to keep doing it. So I don't stop. I don't feel it. I feel like I'm in better shape now at my age than I was 20 years ago. Well, like even more than motion, there's also something that we we're talking about with Ira last week, which is just 
positive energy on stage or just giving off that you've got so much chemistry with the other members of your group and that you're playing off of each other and you're just looking at each other and smiling and for you can us, see the silent conversations going yes. on it it really is a lot of that and and i'm playing with guys you know especially in that band or all the bands i think most of the bands i play in that at that caliber it's beyond even musical terms it, be, it goes into psychological and emotional terms and allowing yourself to just go there. You know, a lot of times you have to learn to just let yourself go. Don't think too much. <laughs> I've always been someone who I try not to be too hard on myself. If I make a mistake or if I, but if I didn't try to try something new and oh, so it doesn't work out. But if you don't go for it, uh, you'll never know what would have happened if a lot of that, this thing that's going on on stage, we're looking at each other and it's like, oh my God, what are you, oh, you're doing that. Oh God, I'm going to do that. Here we go. You know, so we're, there's a lot of playing off each other and also musicians that know how, when not to play, mm-hmm. you know, that's also very important when to let someone take a fill or when, oh, let, let the guitar player or let the drummers doing something. Let's let him go, you know. That's mm-hmm. definitely what we see, at least with Jack here, while well, you played a really long set mm-hmm. that night. For the whole duration of it, it was like everybody knew when to play, when not to play, and when to play together. There was this sense of harmony. Yeah, yeah. Basically what Ira said last week, that you all very much respect one another, but also know one another well, and that allows you to improvise well also. Yeah, we all are, we all can do that. I'm... Also, too, I come from a jammy background, a jam style, a jam player background. When I first started playing, I was 16 years old. You know the story about how I started playing bass? It's a complete accident. I already had a car. I was already driving. I already had a driver's license. I already owned a car when I was 16 years old. Didn't never played bass before. And uh, uh, I was helping a friend move into an apartment. So we're moving them into the apartment and I had all, and I had a Volkswagen Beetle, so we couldn't carry too many things, but we're helping and we're, and when we got into this apartment, we looked up and there was an attic. There was like an opening to get into the ceiling. And so we got a ladder, hey, let's see what's up there. So we got up on the ladder with a flashlight, we're looking up there and somebody had left a base in the attic and it was a, like a, Paul McCartney Hofner style looking no. bass. It looked like a violin bass. It looked just like a Hofner, but it wasn't a Hofner. It was like a Japanese copy of a Hofner. Mm. And so we pulled it down and I'm open the case and I just like start messing with it. And I was like, whoa, this is awesome. I love this instrument. And I thought of Paul McCartney, you know, I was like, wow, this looks just like Paul's bass. And it was kind of easy to play. I remember it was kind of oozy and and I just happened to have $15 in my wallet and my friend sold it to me for $15. So all of a sudden that night I had a bass and I took that bass home and it was like love at first sight. I <laughs> never put it down. Like it, I literally slept with it. It was 15 <laughs> hours a day of nonstop practicing. My parents thought I was nuts. They would come out, you know, and I was like, no. I had no girlfriends, wasn't interested in girls. All I wanted to do was play my bass. And uh, within a couple of months, I was uh, in a band 
and we were called Blowout. We were from San Gabriel, from this town. And we started playing backyard high school parties. We started getting on gigs with this high school party band called Van Halen. And we started playing in Pasadena and, and San Marino, the little backyard high school parties. Back then, this would have been like 1973. This is like the early 70s. Back in those days, the uh, uh, was real popular with kids was vans. You know, a van like a mm -hmm. passenger van. But they would put mag wheels on them and make them look <laughs> fancy. And, and that was like really cool. And so there was these van clubs. And they would have parties. And they were really popular parties. Hundreds of kids would show up. And there was this band called Van Halen. And I was like, oh, that's so not cool. You change your name just so you can play these van parties. That was my thinking. I go, that's not fair. They're getting the cool gig just because they're Van Halen. And But then I come to find out, well, no, the guitar player and the drummer's name are really Van Halen. That's their name. Mm -hmm. So I, okay, oh, this is a coincidence, I guess. But then when I saw them play, it was like jaw-dropping. They were incredible. And they were only doing covers back then. They might have done one original here or there. And this mm -hmm. is before they ever played Hollywood. But anyway, here I was opening for Van Halen. <laughs> and... Uh, so that was like the already getting exposed to this incredible talent that was in my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And I and Eddie Van Halen was already doing the tapping and the crazy guitar things that he was going to become famous for. And so because I was one of the first people to ever see anyone doing rock tapping on a guitar, since no one else had ever done it before Eddie, I saw him doing it. And all of a sudden I go home and I want to start doing it on the bass. <laughs> So the first bass player I ever saw doing tapping on a bass was me. And, that, and not that I was the best at it, but it was I was the first time I ever seen anyone try to do it. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so that happened early, early on. I was probably 16, 17 years old. And within maybe two years of that, of getting my first bass, I was already playing in bars and clubs five, six nights a week in the neighborhood. I started playing at the Viper Room. Back then it was called Filthy McNasties. And I graduated from high school and I started going to East LA College. And I was playing in a big band jazz band there and going to, uh, to school uh, full time five days a week. But then I was playing five nights a week, <laughs> every night going playing in the clubs. And eventually, uh, one night I was playing at the Viper Room and this gentleman, older guy, approached me and said, hey, there's a band looking for a bass player and they're auditioning. The audition's happening tomorrow. You should go down. I want to recommend you to go to go see about this gig. I went down the next day and I ended up getting the gig and it was with a band called El Chicano. They were signed to MCA Universal Records. And the first gig was opening for Santana in front of 40,000 people. And that was my first tour I ever did. How old were you at this point? I was probably eight, nineteen, eighteen, nineteen 18, 19 years old, Ooh. right out of high school. And that was when my touring started. That was the first gig. That was the first time I ever went on the road. Ever First time I ever rode. I think it might have been the second time I ever got on a plane. You know, <laughs> I, it was, I was so green, you know. But it was 
quite an experience playing in front of 40,000 people uh, in a stadium. And uh, it was exhilarating. And I ended up doing a, a tour. I ended up going to Southeast Asia with this band. And, and when I got back, I ended up getting another gig. I was playing it, uh, around town in LA. I was doing a lot of the top 40 bands at this club called the Red Onion. And they were a circuit in LA. They were like the top 40 bands in LA. And I was doing that for about a year. And then I ended up on, uh, I was doing that six nights a week. And on my night off, I was playing at a jazz club called Josephina's in Sherman Oaks. Did you ever sleep? No. <laughs> okay. No. No, I was playing seven nights a week. Actually, uh, my record is 121 straight nights without a night off. Dang. Five sets a night. Oof. And that was my training. That was my minor leagues. So there was never a point in your life where you weren't doing music? No, I've never had another job. <laughs> I, when I was in high school, I kind of did a little bit. I used to paint houses with my dad. Mm -hmm. And I had a, a, the high school got me a job at this place but I was it was part of the high school thing but mm -hmm. as far as when I graduated no I, I actually did a job for one month because my car broke down and I needed to uh, change fix the transmission on my Volkswagen and so I took I got a job for one month and uh, as soon as I fixed my car that was it and I never got another job and that was in the that was in the 70s that was in the 70s yeah yeah so my career my touring career covered half the 70s, all the 80s, the 90s. And then my my production career started in the mid-90s when Oingo Boingo ended. And uh, and then, so I've gone through the teens. I went through the 2000s and the teens, and now we're in the 20s. So a lot of decades. I think a lot of people know you from Oingo Boingo. Would you, absolutely. Say, that's, would you say that's one of the biggest things in your career? Oh, absolutely. Uh, that was an incredible... I learned so much being in that band and uh, working with Danny Elfman and the whole band, especially Steve Bartek, who I play with now. Uh, when I joined the band, they were very open to me being myself. You know, they never told me how to dress or they just let me be me on stage. And also, too, once we got into the studio, they were very open to my suggestions once we got in the studio. Mm -hmm. And so that was the beginning of my production career, because mm -hmm. once I started throwing in my suggestions in the studio, they uh, eventually made me one of the producers. So you were and, allowed to have even just a little bit of creativity. Yeah. In that band. Yeah. Because we had uh, Richard Gibbs on this podcast a few months ago, and well, that was a few years before you joined, but he said that basically... Little really... to no creative freedom. Yeah. From his recollection. Yeah. And maybe that had changed by the time that you had joined. And... Yeah. Yeah. For me, it was in, uh, it was incredible creative experience. You know, as far... Like, Danny was the songwriter. <laughs> but he was always open to parts and, you know, opening, you know, bass parts and vocal parts and... So if you had anything that you can, you know, help make the song better, they were really open to trying things out. And so that eventually led to my production career. Uh, they gave me my, on the second album, I got my first cre uh, production credit. They made me the vocal deputy producer. <laughs> and then uh, starting on Boingo Alive, 
uh, that was when they made me one of the three producers with Danny and Steve. And so that was like, I was in the studio with them every day. We were, there was a Boingo session. I was there and, you know, with working with those guys, it was such a learning experience. Also too, working with incredible engineers, recording engineers, I was always trying to ask questions or I was always asking questions. How do you make the kick drum sound like that? And what mic are you using? And why does it sound like that? What compressor are you using? And, you know, I was always just soaking it all in so that when it came time for me to build my studio, I had, you know, a lot of pointers on what to do and what equipment to use. And so that really helped in when I started Bandos Paradise. So you learned as you went, naturally learned in a school. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then learn, it, it was like going to school. And a lot of times, especially for younger musicians, and I tell this to students, when you're in a band and they're making an album, show up to the sessions. Like, let's say, oh, they're done with the, the bass and the drums, so you don't need to be there. You need to be there because you need to see the process and you need to be part of it. And you could be left behind if you're not there learning and, and, and being part of the, of the production or part of the creative element of making a record. And so you have to show up. And a lot of times it means you're not showing up and not getting paid, but showing up just to learn. And those are the kind of things that I tell a lot of younger players. And it's not even showing up to sessions, showing up to jam sessions or going to just going out and being around people and, and getting heard, maybe showing up at a jam session. You never know who's going to be in the audience. And every gig I've ever gone has been from me playing some stupid little gig that typically wouldn't, you don't know who's in the audience. There might be three people, but one of those people might be somebody who can end up helping your career or getting you on a record. Or, and every, I can go on and on with those kind of stories. Yeah, but I think you're absolutely right because as a musician, uh, even just in a duo, even though I knew that my creative partner was just busy producing and mixing and doing stuff and maybe preferred being alone, I would just push to like, hey, can I be in the studio? Can I just see how you're working? And that's how you learn more than reading tutorials, I feel like. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and a lot of it is, especially when you're in the recording and production, all the really great recordings or when you hear some really milestone type recordings is somebody doing something new or something that hadn't been done before. And I brought, actually brought this up with a student today. Uh, he was talking about the Beatles and he was like, why are the Beatles like, what is it about the Beatles? And I said, it's because they did things, so many things before anybody did. And I can go on with that. They were the first band to have uh, uh, feedback on a record. Mm -hmm. uh, they were the first band to put their, their lyrics on an album cover. They were the first band to use flanging, chorus and flanging, which is a really common thing now. But uh, they were one of the first bands to, to do that. I mean, on and on and on. You know, and you see the progression that they did from the day they started or from their beginnings of recording to where they ended up. It's mind-boggling that they did that in seven years. It's incredible. I always forget that it was just seven years. Seven like... years. It's incredible. And I think George Harrison was like 27 when it ended. So you know. definitely on your list of inspirations. 
Absolutely. I mean, I mean, for inspiring bands, of course, the Beatles. I'm old enough that I got to see them, their American debut on the Ed Sullivan show. And I watched that live with my family. And it was like a Super Bowl night. <laughs> we had all my family. We all had a party to watch that. It was like watching the Super Bowl. And we were all waiting and waiting. And then the Ed Sullivan show came on and we were all in front of the black and white TV. And I was probably six, seven years old. And I remember the girl, my, my older cousins were screaming. Ah, oh! And I thought it was the coolest thing. And they looked really cool. And their hair was different. Nobody looked like that. They, you know, their hair, the mop top, nobody looked like that. And I thought they were the coolest thing. And, and, and you know, it was historic. And I got to witness that. Is there anybody besides the Beatles, like as an inspiration in general, as a bass player? Oh, as a bass player, well, Paul McCartney is definitely one. If you listen, I had never played the song Something. I had to learn it, and and I I played the song Something, and as I'm learning the bass part, it's the most beautiful melodic bass part like that somebody can write, and these parts are there that if they weren't there, they wouldn't be the same song. Like the song would be completely different if it wasn't there. So things like that, like Paul McCartney's one. But uh, when I first started, when I first was in college I, and playing in big bands, I started getting exposed to jazz. And my first mm -hmm. jazz album was uh, Chick Corea, Light, of, Light as a Feather. And so I got into Stanley Clark. Yes. And Stanley Clark is a huge inspiration. And of course, Weather Report uh, with Jocko Pastorius. And I was like a teenager when I first got into those guys and I got to see them live. I saw Weather Report live a couple of times. I saw Return to Forever back in those days in the 70s. I saw John McLaughlin with uh, uh, Return to Forever, uh, I'm sorry, with the Mahavishnu Orchestra. I saw the Birds of Fire tour. Uh, so, I mean, I saw some, because of my age, I got to see some really cool stuff. Being a kid, but being exposed to it. Part of it too was also having an older brother who was a who was a musician. My brother Sammy Avila, who was five years older than me, and I because of him being around bands that were rehearsing and stuff, I got turned on to Hendrix and Cream and the Rolling Stones, and he had those albums laying around. Stuff I would have never went out and bought, but because I had an older brother, I had these albums just sitting there. And Jackie O still does a song called uh, Lady Jane that I performed on Saturday night. And oh. uh, Lady Jane was a song that, that Steve played the sitar. Yeah. yeah. And we do that song because of one of the albums that we had sitting around when I was a kid, uh, Aftermath. And that's where that uh, record came. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was that record, Aftermath. But that song Lady Jane is on. And so we do that song because I love that song. <laughs> And you do that song where like it morphs into a lot of improv and oh yeah you you really make it your own song when you're making covers i try to i really do try to i i look at inspiring to me someone like like uh uh, uh what's his name uh did uh came into the bathroom window what's his name came into the bathroom window what's that guy the english guy mad dogs and englishman what's his name Anyway, uh, I'm having a, a, a I can't, yeah, I'm having that right now. But that's an uh, an inspiration for someone who can take a song and just make it their own. Mm -hmm. 
So you mentioned your older brother. Would you say your older brother was sort of like a personal mentor figure oh, musically? Ab- absolutely, and still to yeah. this day. And uh, if it was, I, I honestly believe that I being exposed to him early, early on, even before I played, I was exposed earlier. It made me, and I had older musicians around. Mm-hmm. And in fact, his band, uh, I, I had me play with them when I was really young. I got, to, they were one of the first bands. They had a band called Moonshine. And I ended up being the bass player in that band for a while. And so I got to play with guys that were five years older than me. And it was incredible. He was in a band called The Crescendos, and they were in high school. And it was when he was a senior in high school. It was a nine-piece horn band. And they were all high school kids nice. from the same high school, The Crescendos. <laughs> he graduated in 1969. 1969 was right in the middle of the Vietnam War. Mm. And out of the nine guys in that band, seven were drafted into the army or into the, into the, went to Vietnam, including my brother. He got drafted. He didn't have to go to Vietnam, but he was stateside. But out of those seven, out of the nine in one band, two were shot in Vietnam, but survived. And I'm just telling you how crazy it was to be around that time. To yeah. be to be a young a young man was often meant you weren't going to make it or you're going to be thrown into danger. But, mm-hmm. you know, things like that, I think about how fortunate it was that that war ended a couple of years before they would have took me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I could have been one, you know, one sent to two off to war. And, you know, and I'm thankful for all sold, you know, all the servicemen who go and do that, of course. But man, to be thrown in danger like that a lot of times in my father's era was he was a teenager during world war ii and all of my uncles and all you know that's a whole different time there where everybody had to go off to war but when you look at that time of that vietnam war era the 60s hendrix and all the things that were being written and sung about it was a it was an amazing time for change and and people were fighting, you know, there was a lot of social justice and, and things being talked about. And that happened again now, you know, that happened just recently with, with, with all the things we know just happened. And so it's a time we're going through again. Music's very healing. Yeah. It's very important in times like Music that, right? was a part of the healing yeah. process, especially, you know, things like, you know, people like Bob Dylan, Blowing in the Wind, and songs like that came out and it just touched everybody. And it's so amazing how music uh, can be a healing part. Another thing about music that was, for me, my mother and father were both uh, musicians. My mother had an amazing, beautiful voice. And I remember when I was a little kid, my mother and father can play for four hours and not repeat a song. They can just sing song after song after song for hours and hours. And I remember watching my mother sing, and I remember watching grown men cry, listening to her. Like just grown men with tears in their eyes. And I was like, like, how powerful is that? That they're crying for that, not because somebody, who knows, they could be something about a song. Yeah. And I still get touched like that by songs, you know? And, and I, I'm sure everybody has. And, uh, but I saw the power in music in that from the time I was really little. And so my mother, 
uh, I was very anxious to learn how to play guitar because I saw the attention they got when they <laughs> sang and played. And I thought that was so cool. Everyone's just watching them. Uh, so my, I, my mother taught me my first guitar chords when I was like five or six years old. So it was something that happened really early for me. So you had these big inspirations, but now like, now that you've become the inspiration to many people, how does that feel to have the tables turned? Thank you for that. And I, and people tell me that often. Maybe that's why I feel like I want to teach and give back. Mm. And this is another thing I teach my students and young people who want to talk to me about it is that you've got to be nice to people because you never know not that you should be an ass you know be an asshole to somebody and or be a jerk and i don't even want to that's the only kind of people i'm prejudiced against are jerks you know are assholes for because i've been playing for almost 50 years now and so you can imagine someone who's very who i met when they were just young and up and coming and maybe playing their first gigs who ended up going on to become superstars and i know a few people would come up and talk to me after a show And I'd give them time, you know, I, yeah, man, thanks. I'm really glad you, oh yeah, you're what? You're a musician? Oh, cool. What do you do? Da, da, da. And, and I've heard that over and over and over years in, year out in different cities all over the world. I enjoy meeting people. I guess I'm just like, I like meeting people and I like hearing their stories. And some of these people have gone on to become huge. You could be a jerk to somebody who could end up being someone who might help your career down the line. And I just burned a bridge because I, you know, mm -hmm. because of that. And also, too, that includes when you're working with other musicians, when you work in the studio, you got to learn how to collaborate and how to be good with working with people. Don't be an ass, you know. And that includes even taking a shower before the sessions. Are you like, <laughs> you haven't showered in three days and you smell? Come on, man. I don't, you know, especially in the studio when you're around people real close, you know. Those are the kind of things you got to think about. And, and just being confident. But being confident also, hey, let's play this one. Oh, you know. <laughs> but things like that, you know, in, uh, when where people want to be around you, you know. So those are kind of things where you have to learn how to just be cool with people when you're making music. When you're an influence, have you personally heard, for example, Bongo being an influence on bands or your playing? I, I mean, just from experience, bands that I've met when they were brand new, like I remember one night I went to see uh, Trent Reznor playing with his band, Nine Inch Nails. And they were opening for Jane's Addiction. And I went to the show and I was blown away by Nine Inch Nails. I had never heard of them and I thought they were, they put on an incredible show. And I went backstage and I'm just hanging out. I didn't know Trent Reznor, or, but Trent was like, oh my God, John Avila. Oh, I like Oingo Boingo. I love Oingo Boingo and da da da. And that's somebody early on that, you know, who ended up becoming, that's just one person I can, I can go on and on. Uh, but that's an example of somebody who who I know were influenced by Oingo Boingo, and I've read about others, you know. A couple of questions about um, Boingo again, the outtakes. There's a lot of outtakes, you know. One of my bass students from school told me that there's some outtakes that have been mastered that like mm -hmm. sound amazing. Like, and I'm like, 
How did they get out there? <laughs> there are collectors. We know a few who have massive vaults of unreleased yeah. stuff. And they always want to know stuff like how, when you know that song, Remember My Name, there were earlier versions where um, a, a bass solo. In There's a bass solo. Mm-hmm. Yes. It didn't make it on the record. And, and well, <laughs> on every record we did, there was always extra songs. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, they didn't make it on the record. And I remember sometimes I was just like, oh, no, what? No. You know, but, you know, I'm just the bass player in the band. But sometimes it was the record company that didn't want this song on the record. Oh, this song doesn't match the vibe. or I really don't even remember why they didn't end up. But I just remember we would always record extra songs. And I do that with a lot of bands. You always record songs and maybe there's a couple that won't make it on and that's just part of the process but somehow somebody got all of them <laughs> you were not in the studio for solo were you i was not what in the studio did you for, do uh, studio work for the danny elfman solo album uh, no i joined but... right after that record came out yeah but why were you in the music video for gratitude <laughs> then I don't know. Am I in that video? Of course. <laughs> you don't remember? I'm pretty sure you're electrocuting Danny. Oh. At the end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly like that. Exactly. Uh, Do you remember how you managed to get into the music video? Probably the because <laughs> the band had switched over at the time. At yeah. that. And I've recorded that song, Gratitude, probably. I'm on three different versions. I'm just not on the solo version. Mm-hmm. A funny thing happened out of that story. When we did that video, there was a guy named Graham, I forget, he was the one who who directed that video. And I remember they had a set, like John and I, they had makeup on us and they put stuff on our teeth to make us look like we were like really, ah, you know. And, And I remember we're dragging Danny to the, to the electric chair and Danny's like trying not to go. And I remember we had him on the ground and we're kicking him and we were really getting into the character. Like, and Danny's like, Hey man, Oh, sorry, Danny. I'm just kind of getting into the character here. You know, man, take it easy on the kicking. Oh, okay. Sorry. You know? And, and, uh, so about a week after we shot the video, I get a call from the director and the director, I, Hey, yeah, how you doing? Hey, John, uh, Listen, I'm directing this uh, thing that's going to be on TV, and I'd love for you to come down and hang out, you know. Uh, Los Lobos is going to be there, and John Doe from X, and Peter Case, and he mentioned all these really cool people that were going to be there. Yeah, man, I'd love to come down. Uh, Well, we're going to have a a rehearsal, and I thought, well, maybe I'm going to be a background musician or something in it. And so he goes, well, we're going to have a rehearsal. I said, well, I can't make the rehearsal. Boingo's in the studio that night. But the day, the next day, when you're doing the thing, I can come down for that. Okay, just come down for that. So I didn't get to go to the rehearsal. So I didn't know what was going to happen. So I showed up to the shoot the, the next day. Oh, great. Here, hey, great, John. Thanks for coming. Here's your script. <laughs> My script? What do you, what script for what? He goes, oh, you're going to be one of the main characters in this in this th- in this thing with acting, and I was like, what? I go, I'm not an actor. I was like, I'm a bass player and I'm a singer, but I'm not an actor. I go, I've never acted in my life. I go, whenever they have a school play, I was always the tree. 
you know that that's what they they would make me the tree and i would just stand there like that was it but i never acted and he goes well john you're a singer it's like singing but you're talking i was like you man i i'm i i don't he goes here's the script go learn your parts and then it turns out i'm doing my my parts with famous actors one of them was lauren green canadian actor lauren green was the father in bonanza Mm -hmm. he's like a legendary uh, uh, iconic actor from years ago and then it was with the lady who played Richie Valens mother in the Richie Valens story anyway I ended up I did my my one acting gig where I actually had acting like I was like a thespian for a night but this all <laughs> happened from that that video and that thing came out it was called legends of the Spanish kitchen that's a great anecdote. I mean, you said that you had a ton of stories. Like, from the Boeing days, do you have any anecdotes about, like, the characters of the people that you were working with or whatnot? Oh, boy. Where <laughs> I mean, the band was... We were really tight as a, a unit. So when anything would go astray, it could cause having that many people doing the same thing at one time like showing up to an airport or or <laughs> showing up to band call when you were leaving the next day after, after a, from the hotel so those kind of things could be really crazy i remember one thing one thing was and we talked about this in the video was uh when we went to mexico and we played agua caliente racetrack we headlined a show it was a big uh, like a multi band event i can't remember all the bands that played but the next morning when we came back we left one of our band members at a gas station in tijuana you just forget him <laughs> you don't remember who it was it was carl oh, oh no. and carl got left and carl still plays with us and we laugh yeah, about yeah. it but carl yeah. got left at a gas station and we fall <laughs> and we went across the border before we realized that Where's Carl? Oh, no. oh my God, we left Carl. <laughs> Carl ended up making it okay, but that's one story. And we talked about that in the farewell video. That is one really funny story. Uh, going to Brazil was also just amazing. People really wanted you there. 60, I don't know, 50,000 people showed up to see us in, in Rio de Janeiro. And we were the only band. There wasn't even an opening <laughs> band. And we had the number one record there for like nine weeks straight. It was incredible being in Brazil. Uh, that was in 93. I remember walking off stage and the song Stay was the most popular song there. Mm -hmm. And we would walk off, we walked off the stage and the people just kept singing the song Stay. <laughs> and they wouldn't stop. And, and it was emotional. That was the song that got me into into it all. It was very random because it was just on, you know, these playlists that platforms will just put together for you, these radios. And I was just showering one day and I was like, damn, that's that's kind of a banger actually. And I just kept listening to it. Yeah, and, uh, that's always just, been one of our most that. popular songs. People just love that song. I, no, nobody, um, maybe just one person when I've mentioned the band in France, knew who it was. So no wonder that I don't think you've ever been to France with them. No, we never you, went to Europe. You did come to Europe. Because I mentioned my hometown of Cherbourg. <laughs> you said that you played there. Is that true? No, not with me. <laughs> Danny Elfman might have performed there. 
It's a tiny city, really. Yeah, but uh, Danny might have... I've performed all over Europe with different bands, so it could possibly have been then. Mm -hmm. You know, with Walter Trout, I toured with the Imperial Crowns. I toured Europe. My first tour was in the 70s with uh, Triumvirat, a German progressive rock band. Been to Europe a bunch over the you, years. You must have been to Normandy then. That's I've been to Normandy, yeah. yeah. That's where I'm from. Yeah. That's where I live. Yeah. I have played Normandy. Beautiful. Yeah. Here is nice too, but going out as a musician into Europe is a whole different thing. It is. Yeah. The one, Like I said, the one thing about the European audience is how much they appreciate. Well, they love music in general, but there's something about uh, traditional American music like jazz and, and, and blues. And when it's done by the guys who created it, they really appreciate it. I do feel a certain intensity when I go to shows back home in Europe, whether it's in France or Germany or Belgium or I like to follow tours <laughs> or Netherlands or even the UK. Crowds are very intense. And here in the US, they tend to be maybe a bit more mellow, maybe a bit disinterested. I think I, so. I don't know. Maybe do you think that's changed? It was they were never mellow when Oingo Boingo played. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I do agree that European audiences just seem to have a very much more appreciative attitude. They really like, they're just into it. Oh, Whereas, just mirror your energy. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes it's a little bit of this sometimes when you're, you know, and that could happen to any band though, when people are just like, hmm. That's what we said about musicians in motion on stage, giving up something. It's contagious. You want to move as well. You want to smile as well. You want, you want to share an experience almost that's what that's what a show is all about not just sitting and watching because you can do that at home yeah being in the same room is different yeah i'm a i mean i'm a music fan so i mean when i go to a show i love a good show i love going out you know and i saw led zeppelin i saw led zeppelin the houses of the holy tour in 1973 when i was 16 and oh man i tell kids that they go you saw led zeppelin <laughs> Yeah, I'm old, you know, but <laughs> I was young and, and I had a car, so I went. Saw a lot of bands. That's like you're still a teenager trapped trapped in your body. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Isn't that what they said last week, that you were the growing younger? I just try, just knock on wood that we keep this going, you know, <laughs> just try to, ah. I, I, like I said, I don't, except for when I hurt my knee on stage, which I've done a few times. Uh, except when that happens, uh, I, I, which it's all healed now, but sometimes you get a little bumped or you fall over the drums. Or The last Oingo Boingo show I ever did, I ended up on my back on the floor and Danny Elfman is dragging she me around the stage. The that was not rehearsed. That actually happened. I ran and there was a cable and I was Bam, I went down and I thought, oh, Danny's going to come help me. No, he grabs my leg and starts dragging me around the stage. But she went along with it. So did you get hurt that night or did you just I got splinters going? on my back. But, but no, yeah. I didn't get hurt. You know, you just like, bam, you're in the moment. You're so pumped. It's ah, bam, you know. If I remember correctly, like on the footage, you just stay on the ground and you keep playing. Yeah. Yeah, you just go with it. The show's got to go on. I never stopped playing. I just kept pounding. It was during a song where all I was just bam, bam, bam. That happened to me when I got to play with uh, Neil Young. 
mm-hmm. in 20, in France. And I played in Paris with Neil Young, with uh, Promise of the Real, with Lucas Nelson, Promise of the Real. And we were backing Neil Young. And on that show, on the last song, I flew into the air and landed on my back. And Neil Young, Neil's on rocking with me. I'm on the ground. And I never stopped playing. And Neil's like, yeah. <laughs> He's like screaming, yeah, you know, well, I'm looking, yeah, you know, <laughs> great rock and roll moment rock and on roll my moments. back. <laughs> As they say, shit happens. And as for performance, do you have any like anxiety, performance rituals, performance anxiety? Like before I play, the only time I ever feel anxiety is if I haven't done my homework, which is mm. very, very rare. You know, I play with a lot of different bands. And when I get a gig and people are hiring me or a band's hiring me or an artist is hiring me, I do my homework. I always try to be really prepared. And the whole thing you got to do is to go up and not suck. You know, (laughs) I tell my students that whatever you do, when you get the gig, do whatever it takes to not have someone else do the gig. If that's the gig you want. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times it means learning a new technique, how to play like, I remember when I first got the gig with Oingo Boingo, oh, Danny says, oh, that sounds great, but here, play with a pick. And they hand me a pick, (laughs) and I didn't play with a pick. So I had to go home and practice 10 hours a day to get really good with playing with a pick. Mm -hmm. But there's no way I'm going to let that be the reason why I'm not going to be the bass player in Oingo Boingo. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of times I tell my students, you got to learn, you got to sing. If you can sing, sing backgrounds, sing harmonies. Because if there's ever a gig and they got two bass players or two guitar players and one sings and one doesn't, but they both play similar, who's going to get the gig? Well, they're going to want the one who sings. So if you have any, any bit of a voice, you know, try to develop it. So things like that. But back to your question, if sometimes in the past when I didn't have time to do my homework and I'm just okay, which is very, very rare. But if that happens, that's when I feel anxiety. It's like, oh man, am I ready to do this? Often the anxiety is there for, ended up not having to be there because I ended up still going up and doing a good job. Mm-hmm. But uh, still, that that's one time that I might feel anxiety. I remember one, one night uh, we were on The Tonight Show, national TV in front of millions of people with Jay Leno. We were getting ready to go on. This is with Oingo Boingo. And we're getting ready to go on. We're about ready to go up on stage, and we're, and they had the curtain there, and we're and I was the first one in front of the curtain, and the guy's holding the cur- curtain, and he goes, "You're not going to believe what happened." And this is right before we're going on. He goes, uh, uh, "There was a band that played here last night, and the guy's guitar amp went out right in the middle of the song, <laughs> in front of seven million people." And the guy's telling me this right before I'm going on stage, and I'm looking at him like, "Shut the fuck up, dude!" And, and it made me like think, "Okay, here they are, Ringo Boy," and I'm going out there, and I'm like looking at this guy, and I'm oh, like, no. "Why did he tell me that?" And instead of just thinking of the music, all of a sudden I'm thinking, "Oh God, is my amp going to go out?" But it yeah. didn't. So uh, yeah, that that was one time where I felt a little bit of, of anxiety, but very rare. That's I good. usually just can't wait to get yeah. the show started. That's I feel like whatever anxiety you feel quickly melts away once you yeah. get into the zone. It's very therapeutic. Yeah. Almost. Sometimes yeah. Uh, there could be anxiety when I'm going to learn a new song that we've never performed. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and so there could be a little anxiety for that. Oh, God, here it is. The <laughs> new song. Oh, boy. Here we go. You know, and 
and then you go for it. So sometimes that can happen. That's something mm-hmm. that we talked about with Ira last week. That's just a topic that I like to touch on. It's just really the idea of what ties into anxiety. It's mental health as a musician or in the music industry in general. We get anxious. We get sad. Yeah. It's with a lot of musicians. You can get a, uh, in a fight with your mate. You know, it could be that or whatever. You're not feeling well. Uh, I've never, I can't think of any one time I ever called in sick because of a gig. I show up no matter what. And no self-consciousness, no doubting your skills and stuff like No, that. you just go up and just kick ass. You just got to put on a show. Usually, I would say 99% of the time, I'm healed by the time I get off the stage. Whatever ailed me went away because all of a sudden I'm just sweaty and feeling good after a great gig. And I just forget about being sick. In fact, it's probably the sweating and everything just like helps to heal whatever was in there. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful to hear. That's that's just what you were saying. That music is healing. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing. One thing I wanted to touch on. This is something that I've done because I have a not a very good memory of remembering things and remembering dates and remembering what happened then and who was I playing with then or what since January first. 1975 from that day to the Jackie O gig I just did last Saturday I've kept a log of every single gig I've ever played on a a log on a uh, on a book in a book and I filled up I'm, I'm just about ready to start my third book the books are this thick on each page you can put 36 gigs per gig and on each side of each page and the book is this thick and I just finished filling up my second one. Nice. That is insane. (laughs) So I can tell you exactly the date, the venue, when I played my first Oingo Boingo show, the first time I ever played with Jackie O, every single top 40 gig I ever did, I've kept a log of where I played, who I was playing with, what city I played in. I have a little mark for if it was overnight, if I had to spend the night, if it was on a tour, those kind of things. And the, and one of the reasons why I've done that is because I've never had a regular job. When you have a job where they give you a, a paycheck, you yeah. know, they keep track of your hours, they keep track of the taxes they took out, they keep track of... So you can check out your hours. Yeah, and they yeah. check out, oh, you made this month, this this so you've made this amount of money so far this year and they keep adding it on and then you get oh this is how much you made this year and you do that for your taxes right mm-hmm. no one's ever done that for me i've never had anyone oh you made it you know no band's gonna tell you how much money you made or whatever <laughs> so i did it myself and i'm very dorky in that way i'm like <laughs> kind of a dork when it comes to that kind of stuff i just enjoy doing that and so this log has never stopped I think it matters a lot. You know, it's like all these items, trinkets you keep, memories and reminders. Yeah. That's very important. Um, I struggle with memory issues a lot. And I just do know that even keeping a journal, what did I do yesterday? What did I do today? In one line, two lines. Yeah. On the side, that helps a lot. Yeah. Keeping physical items like that. Yeah. Just easy to keep track. And for me, when I do, it's also it's easy for me to, when I do my taxes, I know I have a proper <laughs> amount of money that I made. And I know I, I it's to the point, you know. So it helps me in that way. And my, and my accountant always says, man, you're good at this. I'm like, <laughs> well, you know, keep I keep a good book. But it's really, it's kind of, 
cool that I've done that. Performance-wise, um, I know the reason I got into performing was, uh, like I said, therapeutic for myself because I suffer with like a bunch of just general anxiety. Do you feel like what brought you into performing was more so to make others happy or like more so to like have that inner peace for yourself? Wow, that's an amazing question. I don't know if I've ever been asked that. Uh, it is definitely a combination of both. I love smiling faces. Yeah. Uh, and 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 you know you're doing a good job if people. Sometimes I just see people laughing as we're watching this play. They're just like, oh my god! It's like we, could, we couldn't stop. We're talking about that. Yeah. Are their jaws down? Here's that. <laughs> this morning we were like um, at the canyon last week. We're like, hey, did you realize we could not stop smiling at all? <laughs> My time? face hurt by the end of the night. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks. That's awesome. Well, we did our job then. Yeah. But but uh, so it's a combination of that. I love entertaining people and I love giving people a good show. I often, especially like in years with Oingo Boingo or when people actually pay to come see you play, <laughs> I want to give them their money's worth. Like I want them to leave like, oh my God, I... I got my money's worth when when I paid you to see your from show. from France and Canada. To come yeah. yeah. And and so uh I, and then that's one of the reasons why I go out and I cycle and I work out every day to I work out every day just to be in physically <laughs> great condition to put on a show so that I'm not tired by the the 10th song, you know. <laughs> and and so that's one thing. And part of that getting in shape and being physically in good shape to do that, that's part of the healing part process for me because mm -hmm. I'm making myself physically better. Music is actually, and performing is making me physically better than I was if I probably wouldn't have been doing this. And I have to admit there is sometimes I'll be going to a gig and it could be with Jackie O and I'm driving to the gig and I'm just really tired. I might add a long, lot, a lot of times I'll work 10 hours session. So you do get tired yeah. sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah. And, and, and I could work an eight or 10 hour session before I leave to go play with Jackie O and mm -hmm. I'll be tired. I'm like, man, I feel like going to bed. I don't like getting in my car, <laughs> loading my gear in and going to play till one in the morning. And, but here I am and I'm driving and I'll be like, oh boy, I'm yawning and oh God, I wish I didn't have a gig. And then I get there and then once we start playing, I am so glad we started. It's almost <laughs> like after the first song, oh my God, this is what I needed. This is, a, thank you, you know, I'm here and this, I, and, and then I go home and I can't go to sleep because I'm so like pumped up. That's why you played so late the other night. Yeah. When did we leave? 2 a.m., 3 a.m.? I didn't get home until 3.30. <laughs> I, I didn't fall asleep until 4 in the morning. And I had to be up at 8.30 in the morning to go on this cycling event. I went cycling with my kids. And, and oh man, I was pretty tired. <laughs> but I was, I felt good. One of the things really cool is that I don't drink or party anymore. I haven't done that in years. But I enjoyed it when I did. I, it wasn't like a terrible thing when I drank, but it was like becoming a vegetarian. I just decided <laughs> to cut meat and I cut alcohol and I just started eating better. Mm -hmm. and, and for me, not drinking alcohol was part of that process. It just helped. It helps me wake up in the morning and feel mm -hmm. good. I think that's important. I think that's an issue that many musicians can have. At least young musicians that I see now when I've been booking bands and whatnot, that they just, 
they just can play. They're, they're in the green room here with beers. The, the fridge is full of beers and they need to take the edge off necessarily all the time. And like, this can't be healthy. No. I see that and I think, how can I help to not end up having these problems with substances? Yeah. I mean, I, I drank into my 50s. And, and like I said, it, it, was, it wasn't like uh, I was a drunk all the time and I drank every day or anything like that. I, enjoy, I, I enjoyed beer like I enjoy coffee. Like I love good coffee. I love like a good cappuccino. Or, and I enjoyed beer. To me, beer gave me that same like, mm, that's a good beer. I really mm -hmm. enjoyed the taste of that beer. And the, yeah, casually. It was very casual. But, and I enjoyed social drinking with friends and going out and, and maybe after gigs. You know, when you're, yeah, I enjoyed it. It was just a fun thing. And I was young and, but I did it for a good long time. And I just reached a certain point where, like I said, I was like, I wanted to be healthier. And I wanted to like, I started, I started gaining weight at one point and I wanted to just do something that helped me lose weight. I was probably 20 or 30 pounds, maybe even more heavier than I was, than I am now. And uh, I see pictures of myself back when I was heavier and it was like, oh God, you know, uh, I, I would say my 40s were probably my least healthiest time. I was heavier. I was just not in good shape. Um, was that in the 90s? This would have been like the late 90s, starting around the late 90s, going into the 2000s. It was just not the healthiest part of my life physically and just a lot of ways, you know. One day, this actually, this one of the things that started this whole thing one of my ex-students, uh, uh, his name's Anthony, Anthony Logerfo, and he is the drummer with Pro, uh, Lucas Nelson and Promise of the Real, and he's mm -hmm. also Neil Young's drummer. Mm -hmm. Anthony's mother, her name's Kathy Logerfo, sent me a book called Eat to Live, and it was so random. She sent me this book, and I was like, why did I call that? It's like, your, why did your mom send me this book? Oh, she thought that you need to read this. It's kind of peasant dressing, isn't it? <laughs> it was like, wow, okay. And I read the book and it changed my life. All of a sudden I wanted to... I guess you agreed by the end of it. Oh, by, oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. And I had, my cholesterol was over 300 at that time, which is very, very dangerous. You can get a heart attack. Uh, and I ended up doing this book. I started eating really, really well. Uh, uh, it wasn't necessarily vegan, but it was a very, very healthy way of eating and changing your lifestyle, including not drinking. And I and they said you didn't have to stop drinking, but they said if you do it, it's going to make this process go even faster. And that was when I stopped drinking. And within three to four months, my cholesterol with no medicine, only by diet, went from over 300 to 170 in about three or four months with no no medication so it worked for me and I just kept that going I started losing weight I it was like a, a amazing thing that happened for me mm -hmm. I read that down <laughs> yeah eat to live by Dr. Furman okay it's almost like a commercial here no yeah I was thinking wow but those, are, actually, those are some of the non-musical <laughs> things that have changed my life and I think that changed it changed me and what else is non-musical that has changed your life then uh, you know, my family uh, is something that is just, I've been married uh, going on, well, I'm at 39 years being married to the same woman. And, uh, and so we have, I have two adult daughters uh, who are both extremely talented. One of them's a 
college professor and an English professor, and the other one is a gifted singer who I work with. And I have two amazing grandkids. One of them is an 11-year-old tennis phenom. And then my other, uh, uh, da my other granddaughter, she's three years old, and she's an artist. She's constantly Aww. painting. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Very artistic. Yeah. And I and they're part of this whole thing, you know, and it was a little hard being a dad and being a touring musician because I had to say goodbye. I from the time they were born until they were, you know, into their teens, that's all I did was tour. So I was gone a lot. And so it was a little bit tough. Luckily I married a woman who was okay with me. She she didn't want to change me. Like when we when we started dating and, and getting married and all that that was what I did I didn't have another job in fact I couldn't do anything else that's all I did that's all I knew how to do so she was fine I was able to support a family and and being a musician and she was cool that's what you got to do you got to go you know yeah it worked out and so we're still we're still married and we and she still supports what I do so that's something that's really been important and having a musical family in general i have i have uh, uh i i perform with the avilas the avila uh, the avila family and it's uh, uh my brother sam sammy avila my older brother his two sons andy and danny avila andy is the drummer for a touring band andy frasco in the un and you could check them out they they tour all over the world and then my uh, uh his brother danny avila and incredible guitar player producer owns a studio and then uh, and then my daughter Lila uh, who's an uh, uh, incredible singer songwriter and so I get to perform with my family not often but when we do it's always an event that's so super cute like really like it's a tight family that you've got that's great yeah I'm very lucky in that and we we uh, uh, and it all came from my parents you know my parents started it and in, uh, they influenced us and they, they exposed us to it. For me, I love to play swing, swing music. And that came from my dad. My dad used to play big band albums. He was really into big band, like, uh, uh, like uh, you know, uh, all those famous guys of the, from that era. I grew up listening to that. So when I hear swing music or swinging on the bass, it's already in, in me. So a lot of influence came from that, including Spanish music, uh, uh, Mexican music, Mexican ballads, country music. Uh, my, I was turned on to early country music from my parents and mariachi music. My dad used to love mariachi music. And I produce some pretty famous mariachi albums. Uh, mariachi El Bronx came from that. And so uh, I've been able to pass that, that influence on to uh, projects. That's really eclectic. That's cool. You guys are like a real life Von Trapp family. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. They love that music, that movie, by the way. Oh my God, they grew up on that. What? Von Trapp. The, sand the, and Music. Oh, no. Yeah, I, I'm maybe the, I'm What's the name of the movie? Uh, the, the Sound um, of Music? The Sound of Music. Yeah. I went to there where they filmed that, like where that all takes place in Austria. And, yeah. And, yeah. And oh my God, it's so beautiful. And I take, and I remember, you know, when I was two, was when I was on tour. And my actually, my daughter was actually touring Europe. She played uh, jazz festivals like the around there. And I remember I was there with her, and we were there, like singing those songs. <laughs> so funny. 
since you've literally been all over the music industry playing many roles, how do you see it changing? How do you see it has changed? Oh my God. How it's changed. You know, I, I, I can't believe it, it. And it's lucky for me uh, when I started, keep in mind, when I first started playing bass 1973, Led Zeppelin was still pretty new. The Beatles had just broken up three years earlier, you know. So I was there, I mean, three years ago from right now is not, I mean, it's not that long ago. And so I, that's where I started. And I was into the Beatles because they were part of me growing up. Mm -hmm. uh, but from that time, going into like the mid-70s, into like the late 70s, disco happened. I was playing in top 40 clubs when disco started. And I started playing disco music when disco was brand new, all that and I loved disco music fun because the bass yeah. playing was so much fun to play. It was very <laughs> fluid, very busy bass lines. Yeah. And I loved playing disco. <laughs> you know, it had this... It was very busy bass lines. And I got to wear the, 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 the suits. We had three nice. piece suits. Don't ever look for any photos from that era. <laughs> but I was around when disco started. I was also around when punk rock started. When I did my first European tour, this is a good story. I was playing at this club, Josephina's, that club I mentioned. Mm -hmm. And that was like the number one jam session club in LA. And I was playing with a lot of great, great musicians, but some of the musicians I was playing with, the house band was members of the band Rufus and, and Chaka Khan. Mm. And so some of these musicians and, and, and a lot of those style musicians were hanging out and I was playing a lot of funk. This would have been around 1978, 79. And one night, this German guy came up to me and says, I got a gig in Europe and I will pay you, I forget what the amount it was, but it was way more than what I was making at the time. And he goes, and I will pay you this much money just to say yes. And I'll pay you this much money to come and play with my band in Germany. And I said to myself, what am I making, 80 bucks tonight? You know, it was a cool gig, but man, I'd never been to Europe. And I'm going to play with a band. And they were actually a really cool band. They were very, uh, like a, they were very famous in Germany. And they were on a major label. And I said, yes. And he said, the only problem, this was on a Monday. He goes, you need to be on the plane by Thursday. And whoa, okay. <laughs> Keep in mind at that time, I'm still single. I didn't even have a girlfriend at the time. Uh, maybe I, I might've just started dating my wife, but I was still single. And so I had nothing holding me back. So, okay, I, I took the gig. And I remember one of those nights I got hit up by another artist, Al Jarreau, to take to play in his band, but I had already taken this gig and I had to turn down Al Jarreau at the time, which was a heartbreak because uh, I, I loved Al's music and I had played with Al earlier, uh, years earlier. And so I had to pass up that gig, but I ended up going to Europe. But the story is on my way to the airport to go to Europe for the very first time, I had longer hair. My hair was kind of longer, kind of maybe your, <laughs> your, the length of yours down to my shoulder. And I'm, I, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm on my way to the airport. I go, I'm going to a continent I've never been to, let alone a country. I'm going to play in a band I've never met except for one guy. 
And when I step off that plane, I could be anything or look like anybody I want. And that's just what I'll be since no one's seen me before. Yeah, yeah. Why don't I play with that a little bit? So I stopped on the way to the airport at a punk rock barbershop in Venice Beach, right on the boardwalk. And I got a mohawk. So when I stepped off that plane in Germany for the first time, I went from being this funk bass player to punk rock mohawk. And that's when punk rock was just hitting, right when I stepped off that plane and going into Europe. And I remember the soundtrack of that era for me is the song by Madness, One Step Beyond. <laughs> and ska was hitting and yeah. and I was like, that was punk rock. And I remember <laughs> like, it was an amazing era for me. Do you have the pictures of that, of that haircut? Uh, I, there are some around. I may be far and few between, but, and uh, yeah. And I ended up uh, living in Germany for a year. That would have been oh, yeah. 1979, 80. I lived there a whole year. Yeah. They, and I lived in the town Köln. <laughs> Köln. They call it Cologne here, Cologne. but over there it's called Köln. <laughs> they have the double dome cathedral. Okay. Yeah. It's right on the Rhine. Was there a couple of years ago? Well, to see shows, of course, and um, you no, know, the Germans are lovely. They they queue up really well before the show. Yeah, <laughs> good crowds. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. I saw, and when I was there, I saw Queen in Cologne. I saw Queen too. I saw Queen mm -hmm. in 1979. I saw uh, the Scorpions. Of course, I was in Germany. You got to see the Scorpions. <laughs> And, you know, so it was an amazing era back then. It was a combination of punk rock and it was right when Bowie and the glittery style, you know, <laughs> glam, rock. glam rock was new. Punk rock That's was new. Yeah. <laughs> and it was fresh. And just being there when it was starting and when it was happening was very exciting. Being young, too, just being young and being open to it. So you were, you were literally there for those changes. That's, so I'm getting back to your, your question about how have things changed. I've been a part of or being there when it changed. And then uh, going into the 80s, I started my first punk rock band, uh, Food for Feet. That started in 1980. You played some of their songs. We I did some of the you. songs. Yeah. And, and when we first started, we were punk. And it was in L.A. right when punk was was starting. And, and that's when we were on the bicycles on the Ciclavia mm. bike trail. We went or bike path. We went past uh, Madame Wong's in Chinatown. And that was like the punk rock band venue to play. And like the, the Clash and or, or like the Ramones and Oingo Boingo and, and, and the police and all these bands played there. Mm -hmm. And and. That was our first gig was uh, was Madame Wong's in Chinatown with Food for Feet. There's not much information about Food for Feet online, at least. No, there is not. It was at a time, you know, it was early 80s, and it lasted right up until around 91, 90, 91. Johnny Vatos, the drummer from Oingo Boingo, was our drummer. But yeah, there's many people looking for any kind of content about the band. <laughs> it's hard they, to they find. Really, they yeah. really can't find it. It's hard to find. There's not much out there. I've seen some people posting some live videos, like home video stuff. There's some stuff out there. Like they have this thing in LA called the K-Rock's Almost Acoustic Christmas Concert. It's super huge event. And Food for Feet was the first band to play that the first year, you know, year one. 
We played South by Southwest the first year it happened, 1987. The first year they had South by Southwest, we played. You know, so there's a lot of cool stuff we were around when things were just beginning, you know. And you still remember those songs, you still play them. Yeah, I still, yeah. Yeah, well, I, that was a big surprise for us to hear. Yeah, I didn't expect that at all. Yeah, I, you know, I guess it started with the the Jackie O liked the songs, and I knew how to sing them because they, I sang <laughs> those songs so many thousands of times that they're in my head. I don't even have to think of the lyrics, and I go, "Here's a song called Retire," or or or, or mm-hmm. you know, and they were just like, "Yeah, we want to do that," and they just and we've just been doing them ever since, and we do them almost every time we play. The audience seems to really enjoy those songs. They always did well. Those songs always got a good response when we played them live. Is that what you guys do? You just sit around in the studio and you're like, hey, I've got this song, I've got this song. Yeah. A lot of times we just bring in a song. Like we did Pump It Up, Elvis Costello. That was the first <laughs> time I ever done that song. That was brand new for so us. That's how so it came together as a band. You all, uh, well, from what Iris said, you all kind of knew another. Yeah. More or less. In the past, yeah. I've known the drummer Dave, David. For uh, since the 70s, he used to play in a band with my brother Sammy. They had a band together. So I met him through my brother Sam. Mm-hmm. And and then just from that, we've just always known each other. He used to actually live in this area, David did back back in those days. And then uh, Steve, I met when I met Oingo Boingo, but that would have been like 1984. So I've known Steve since 1984. And then uh, Ira, actually, I've known of him. And I've been aware of him. I just never played with him until Jackie O. But we're just wondering about where the band name came from. I think I think us. David was the first one who thought of it. We're I think seeing, we're seeing him soon, so I guess we'll ask him. Yeah. But... Oh, what was that? Sorry. We're seeing David soon next week. Yeah. Oh, great, yeah. Dave. David's got an amazing history. He's played with so many people. Well, you have too. That's the most insane artist <laughs> you've worked with. Yeah, I think that's a lot of it. Is just. I don't know, just being in the right place at the right time. I remember playing a top 40 gig here in West Covina, which is further east from where we where we're at right now, down the 10 freeway. And I was playing at the Red Onion. And one night, this guy came up to me and he had like a French sounding, he had like a European sounding, French sounding accent. My name is Patrick Moraz. <laughs> Patrick Moraz was the keyboard player for the Moody Blues. He also played with Yes and a fantastic musician. In Europe, he's like incredible. And he goes, I'm doing, I'm in Los Angeles to do an album and I want you to play bass on my record. And I want you to sing on it too. I love your singing. <laughs> and I was like, you know, I'd never played on a record. And this is before Ingo Boingo. This was before Food for Feet. And he gave me his card and a month later he called me up. And I went in and uh, we did it at the record plant. And that was how I did my first record. I got to play with the drummer from Yes, the original yeah. drummer of Yes. I should know. And, and, <laughs> and uh, there was a lot of great musicians, but that was my first album. But that's, once again, I tell you, you never know who's going to be in the audience on some stupid gig. Mm-hmm. So you always got to play, like, bring your A game wherever you play. Mm-hmm. And that happens. Another night I was playing, and I hate to name drop it, I'm just giving examples of that <laughs> happening. I was playing at, here in Pasadena at the Old Town Pub, which is a little tiny bar that holds probably 100 people at the most. And you'd be like sardines if there's 100 <laughs> people in there. 
And uh, one night I'm playing there, and this was in the in the '90s. And and Steve Vai came in, famous guitar player Steve Vai played with uh, Frank Zappa. He originally played oh, with Frank. Oh yeah, no, that's true. Steve Steve yes. Vai, he's a famous yeah. guitar yes. player. Uh, and he came in and heard us play, and we, and we were like in there playing. I didn't even know who he was. <laughs> and and uh, a week later, I get a call. It's Steve Vai. He goes, "Hey man, I'm recording. I'd like for you to play on my record. You never know who's gonna be." I mean, it honor. brings it all back around to passing on what's happened to you. I mean, you probably did that for those people at Starbucks, right? In a way, yeah. <laughs> I I can say I can't think of right now, but I I've introduced or been I've met people when they were kids who went on to become something huge. Yeah. And and uh, I enjoy that. One of my talents is being a good judge of talent. When I hear something or somebody's got something going on, something special, what it is, I don't know what it is, but I'm a really good at, wow, like I can really sense and I want to meet these people and I want to help them or I want to jam with them or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that's something I've always had since the early years. You know, one, another example, when Food for Feet used to play in San Diego, in our early years, this is once again before Ingo Boingo, there was this kid that played in this band called Bad Radio. His name was Eddie. And and little Eddie used to come to, to our shows. After we, he opened, his band opened for Food for Feet. But after that, he always came to our shows. And we knew him as the singer. Well, we, you know, he was a fellow musician. So we yeah. always say, hey, Eddie, hey, thanks for little Eddie. Man. We called him little Eddie because he was my size. <laughs> him and I were eye to eye. Well, little Eddie ended up becoming Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam. You, like, you just never know who's going to come up. And <laughs> it's crazy. That's crazy. <laughs> no, that's a lot of serendipity and being in the right place at the right time. Absolutely. Yes. And part of it is luck. You know, and, and a lot of times that a lot of musicians say, oh, I'm never going to be heard. But first, you just got to be ready when that luck comes or yeah. when that opportunity happens. You got to be ready. So whatever that takes. But you also have to make your own luck. And that's when I say you got to go out and hang out. You got to yeah. go hang out. Yeah. You got to go meet people. You got to you can't sit in your room all, all the time. And a lot of times it's a lot like like it's easier now because people post videos of them. Mm-hmm. On 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 YouTube or on 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 Spotify or whatever, or not Spotify on Instagram, and so in a lot of ways it's kind of easier now mm-hmm. to do that. But I still think you got to go out and you got to go hang out and you got to play. You got to meet people. You got much what you're saying that it, like there's not really any bad opportunity. Yeah, and when the opportunity knocks, you got to be ready, whatever that mm-hmm. is. I think there is luck involved. You know, like me going to get coffee. You know, I end up going to coffee. Now I'm a teacher. Not, you know, you never knew any other band. Yeah. Play that Starbucks. <laughs> How that happened? Well, John, thank you. It's been great having you for Musicians Tea Time. You're welcome. Um, thank you for having me. I hope uh, I hope I gave you uh, all the the all the things you need to uh, tell the story that you are telling. Oh, thank you. Well, you were telling the story yourself, so I'm happy to to share share the stories and and you know the 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 times i call it my 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 journey 
And uh, every time I end up somewhere where either it's on my back with someone <laughs> yelling at me or someone dragging me across the stage or being on an airplane going to Southeast Asia or wherever that is, I always call that my journey. And, and my journey has brought me to you too. So thank you for being here. Thank you very much. Very, yeah. very honored to be a part of John Avila's journey. Oh, <laughs> it's my pleasure. And we'll see what's up for you in the future. Yes, <laughs> please. Musicians Tea Time is a production of Acid Airplane Records and is hosted by Gabrielle Chenet and Sid Levine. All episodes come with a full transcript and translation into French on the Acid Airplane Records website. Thanks so much for tuning in today. <laughs>